Hello, and welcome to the School Safety News Podcast. I'm Amanda Klinger. And I'm Dr. Amy Klinger. And we are the Educators School Safety Network. We're a national nonprofit organization, and we provide school safety training and resources and technical assistance to schools throughout the United States and Canada. And one of the resources that we do is the production of a couple of podcasts. Um, You may be familiar with the other podcast that we do, which is our School Safety Free Period. That's a little bit of a lighter look at the lighter side of school safety. But this podcast, the School Safety News Podcast, is sort of uh, just the facts, ma'am. And some news to just kind of keep you up to date. So here we are at the uh, midpoint of September, mid to late September 2018, and um, there's been a lot happening already. There's been a number of different events that have occurred just in the first 30 days of school or so, Um, but I wanted to highlight a couple of them. Um, And then typically what we do with these is have a little bit, um, hopefully Amanda can provide sort of a little bit of a takeaway or maybe an object lesson if there is one. So the first one I want to talk about, this occurred in Alabama. We had a situation where a second grade student brought a gun to school in his backpack and while he was showing another student it discharged and shot the other kid in the hand. Um, That that is not the first, that's maybe the first time that that happened this school year. But that is certainly not the first time that that has happened in an American school. Yeah, and it's not the first time this school year either. So, yeah, it is very frequent. And I I guess one of the the situations there, and I just had this conversation in a training today with an elementary teacher, is that, you know, elementary teachers tend to be always looking, you know, try try to look at the external threat at, you know, an adult or someone coming in, etc. And this just really kind of hits home the fact that, we need to be concerned about what the kids are talking about. And this particular teacher was saying how the kids were talking about, well, I have a gun at home or my dad has a gun and someone didn't believe them and was saying, oh, I bet you don't really have a gun. And so I think it's important for us to, especially for elementary folks, to keep in mind that that possibility of a, of a gun making its way into a classroom is frighteningly real. This took place in Alabama, and so there was some confusion of which of the two students was actually injured. But long story short, um, that clearly was an issue. And then also they ended up charging the parent of the student that brought it to school um, because of not having the, the weapon secured in the home. There was, so an article, there was an article about that, about uh, the proper or improper um, security of firearms used in past school shooting events. Uh, there was a piece that, and I can't remember, so this is not very helpful, but there was a piece uh, this summer uh, where a journalist was looking at that and looking at the number of cases in, pre- in previous school shootings where the person who owned the weapon and had not properly secured the weapon that was then later used in a school shooting, how often they were charged with the crime. Um, and it, it was really an astonishingly low number. And, and the point of this the journalist's position was maybe if we came down a little bit harder on that, that people would secure their weapons and we'd have little bit less of a problem. Yeah, and this isn't really a gun control sort of discussion. It's a discussion about responsible gun ownership, ownership, regardless of what your position is on that. Sure. Um, Then also this week, this past week, um, we had an incident at a school in South Carolina where a student was heard to say he will shoot 62 people and that he had an Uzi in his back pocket. Um, This occurred the day after they had had a lockdown because someone had written in the bathroom, we should shoot this school up. Hmm. Um, and so, of course, you can probably um, extrapolate what happened from there was, well, I was kidding. These are the right. lyrics from a rap song, etc., etc. That was the claim? Yeah. 
Well, maybe it's a little-known rap song. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yes, so multiple students overheard the comments, and they report that they were unsure whether it was a joke or a threat. And I guess that raises the point. We see these all the time. But it it struck me in the sense that what kind of a position kids are put in, they shouldn't have to determine if it's a threat or a joke. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the intimation here is because he says he will shoot 62 people, that that's high, you know, hyperbole, and that we should have automatically known it was a joke. When I that's think not you could the make, case. I think you could make the case that sixty-two is sort of oddly specific. Mm-hmm. Um, that you could you could make the case that they maybe that makes it more of a credible or more of a substantive threat. That it's not just oh I'm gonna do whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think that's difficult, and, and we talk about this all the time. Of we have got to come to a place with our kids where we have conversations of this is not something you joke around about. It is not acceptable to to joke about this. Um, and, and you know, even with this, you know, so it turns out it was not a credible threat. It turns out it was a joke, I guess. But there's still a lot. There's a still a cost, right? There's the intangible cost of how kids feel going back to that school. And then there's the costs that we always talk about of loss of instructional time, all of the law enforcement resources that were brought yeah. to bear, um, all the resources of the of the school that were brought to bear, and then of course you know the the, the chaos, fear, anxiety, and disruption that that it causes for students. And I think the important point here is I had to sort through a wheelbarrow full of threats that were shockingly similar in mm-hmm. terms of somebody making a claim about blowing up the school, shooting up the school. So this one is the one I chose because of the nature of the way that he said it. But it is unfortunately uh, one of many, many, many threats that schools had to deal with this week. So then let's move on. Um, We also had an incident outside of Chicago in a suburb north of Chicago where a student was arrested for having loaded guns and experimenting with explosives. And in this particular... In the school? No, um, but at his at his home. Oh, okay. Um, and in this particular case, the threat did not come from the school. The mom discovered it. Um, discovered the weapons in the bedroom and the the gun making or sorry the bomb making materials. And the student was intending to to do it at school. Yeah, oh. it, it appears to be that way. The guns belong to a family member, um, but they also you know found the evidence of explosives. And so there's two pieces of that. I just want to kind of point out. One is the increase that we have seen in gun slash bomb mm-hmm. sort of threats. Incidents, yeah. um, and then the other is And the, it, it, it's important to note that's due to Columbine. Um, I know that we, we talk a fair bit about Columbine and sort of the cultural legacy of Columbine. We are entering into the school year that will be the 20th anniversary of Columbine. And, you know, not every everyone knows that Columbine was supposed to be a bombing event, but they sort of failed at their bombs. But folks who are very interested in Columbine certainly know that it was supposed to be a, a bombing event. So I think we're, we're going to see, I think, much more of an uptick in combination events involving the threat of gun, guns and bombs together. Well, what struck me about this one, and we see this, you know, four or five times in a year, where the parent has to make what has to be an agonizing, gut-wrenching decision yeah. about what to do, whether mm-hmm. to involve law enforcement or not. Um, and in the article, they interview someone who says, we hope any parent would do that in the future. Um, and then it ends up that the student was placed in a secure treatment facility. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think sometimes I'm sure people hesitate to, you know, they feel that there's going to be immediate incarceration um, as opposed to maybe getting 
appropriate support and intervention. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm most of the way through Susan Klebold's book, the mother of one of the shooters at Columbine. And I think we'll probably, uh, you know, with it being the 20th anniversary, we'll do an episode coming up talking more about Columbine. But what really struck me uh, in the book and what I've read so far is that dilemma as a parent. And I think what was really difficult for her was all of the things that she saw in hindsight, but didn't see as problematic or troubling at the time. And so I think it would be really difficult to be a parent who sees things as problematic and troubling in the time, um, and then having the the courage to act. Well, and and what this doesn't say is, you know, what behaviors of concern were happening prior to this. And so when you're faced with the reality of these are weapons in my son's bedroom, it, it, you know, we hope that people would do the right thing. But we also need to think about how do we provide parents with the mechanisms and the support to do the right thing several steps before we sure. get guns in the bedroom. Yeah. And, and I think that's the other kind of takeaway is what can, what can we as a society, mm-hmm. as well as, as a school, do to help people get the resources they need? Because a lot of these behaviors of concern that you're referring to, it's not socially acceptable to say that about your kid or to feel that about your kid or to report that about your child. And what an agonizing decision. Yeah, well, I think especially in the wake of Parkland, I think there was sort of the the twin prongs of advocacy that came directly after Parkland were the sort of gun thing, the gun argument. But then there there was also sort of a bipartisan call for increased mental health funding for schools. And I think we're seeing it a little bit Honestly, not a ton, um, but, I, but I think what we haven't seen at all is that decrease in stigma around mental health, mental illness, behaviors of concern, something that's maybe not truly mental illness, but is a behavior of concern. And I don't think that we've seen a commensurate work of destigmatizing that. Sure. Of, that's, I mean, imagine how difficult it is to say, uh, I'm concerned about my son or daughter's unhealthy eating habits. Like that, that dilemma as a parent, let alone something that has such an incredible yeah cultural stigma like mental health, mental illness. I mean, I've sat across parents as a principal. I've sat across from parents weeping, you know, hysterically because they were so frustrated trying to help their child learn to read. Right. Imagine when it is something where the stakes are like quite death. literally life and yeah. death and yeah. how parents are in that, that situation and are we able to support them? And mm-hmm. I'm not, are you going to turn your child in to the authorities? Right. Well, and I think when we talk about when we do training for schools and school districts and threat assessment and management, I think one of the most critical pieces, having the plan in place and being able to provide supports and interventions, but that communication with parents ahead of time so that they understand that this is something that we do. This is something that we can we can provide supports and interventions so that it's not, I think, otherwise people see it as just this punitive thing, as I have to solve this problem myself. Or call the cops. All by myself, or my kid is getting packed up and shipped away yeah. to jail forever and ever. And I think when you talked about having the courage of doing something and saying something and, and getting help intervening at earlier stages, I think it might become easier for parents, one, if we cut down on some of the stigma, but that, two, that we are able to say, when you have a kid who's in fourth, fifth grade, who's exhibiting behaviors of concern and is not violent, we can do things that are supports and interventions. We can do things that are not punitive, expulsion, criminal. Separate facility. You know, we can, the, you know when this hasn't risen to the level of criminal yet, yeah. that there's still a lot of things that we can do. And I think that maybe we, sometimes we don't do a great job of communicating 
um, those options to parents. Well, and you know, we talk a lot about how after Parkland, you know, there's this this part of the byproduct of the student activist movement is giving kids permission to see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, what hasn't happened is giving parents permission to do that. So it's kind of an interesting thing mm-hmm. that, you know, it's okay for a friend or mm-hmm. someone to report a concern and we and we're going to support them and mm-hmm. help them and do all kinds of things but i really wonder have we given our parents that same permission and that mm-hmm. same level of support well and there is framework for that i mean there's framework for sort of harm reduction policies that we know work you know like in communities where they're really struggling with incredibly high you know rates and levels of addiction where they have sort of harm reduction policing where if you have an overdose that would say that there's sort of this you know, okay, we're not going to prosecute in this way because we're we're trying to provide supports and interventions first. And if yeah. we if we have to get to a criminal consequence or a discipline consequence, you know, for a student, that we get there, but that we have this sort of agreement that the way we approach things here is holistic and therapeutic yeah. when we can. Now, obviously, if you have a kid that is committing violence and perpetrating violence, we've sort of missed that opportunity, but that we make really clear that we have those opportunities. But what all these kids had in common... Um, all of these kids that perpetrate violence have parents. Mm-hmm. And so there is that thread. There is that threshold. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility there that maybe is untapped. Mm-hmm. So, And then finally, I highly recommend an article that I read in a publication called The Slate, which I'm sure I should know more about. But I think I, it's just Slate. Oh, Slate. Sorry. From the internets called The Slate. I think it's, it's just Slate. Slate. Sorry. Uh, sorry, I, I, slipped, I, I slipped into free period, yeah. uh, free period mode there. Snarkiness there. Sorry, it's hard to um, break. But there is a piece there um, that I highly recommend. Um, it's an interview that was done um, with three teachers that survived school shootings. One was... Uh, a student at Columbine at the time and went on to be a teacher and then two others. One was at Sandy Hook and um, the third gentleman was at the shooting um, that happened about a year and a half ago in that elementary school. But, but what I want to what I want to highlight is just one simple line from the author mm-hmm. who says, and I'm quoting, hearing these stories provides a jarring look at what we ask of teachers in America. And I think that's so telling Mm -hmm. because we are unintentionally or intentionally, we are asking these people to literally go into the line of fire Mm -hmm. or be willing to do so. Um, And as much as, you know, we we recognize law enforcement and fire for that. And we should absolutely Mm -hmm. having a son that does that. Mm -hmm. But we also need to acknowledge that to a large extent, we're asking the same heroic action from teachers, mm-hmm. we're just not training them to do it. Mm-hmm. We're just expecting them to we're somehow yeah. intuitively know how to do what we have spent incredible amounts of time training police and fire to mm-hmm. do. So mm-hmm. um, I highly recommend that as a, a little bit of insight into what these individuals have gone through. And, you know, hats off to them for really taking a very, what is certainly a traumatic um, event in their lives and and talking about it for the common good mm-hmm. so yeah absolutely and I think you know it, it's also worth noting as we always do that school safety is not just about these type of events now you know what is covered in the media and what comes across our desk and what we are t- you know, talk about on this podcast unfortunately skews heavily towards that just because um, it's a little bit diff- more difficult to get your hands on information about lower level types of events, mm-hmm. other other types of crisis events. 
Um, but those are very real and, and they do happen. Um, obviously with the uh, hurricanes and the flooding in the, in the yep. Carolinas, there is going to be an incredible uh, response that is going to be required to get kids back to school. Mm -hmm. And so it is not just active shooter events that can interrupt school, that can uh, you know, impede the learning process. And, and that is a school safety issue of yeah. being able to recover from a natural disaster like that and get back to some sense of normalcy and being able to do the business of educating kids. Um, that is a preparation planning exercise. Yeah. And that's part of school safety too, not just school shootings well, like you hear about all the time. You look at the four events we looked at this episode, they they span that continuum of threats, which every school, literally every school in the United States is dealing with, mm -hmm. to you know the pop, the potential of a weapon being brought to school, which is certainly not out of the question for many 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 schools, mm -hmm. and then all the way up to the thwarted plot and the actual shooting. Mm -hmm. So I mean that's the continuum that educators are being asked to deal with. Mm -hmm. So. Well, um, I think that's all we have for this week. You can always check out our other podcast, The School Safety Pre Free Period. Please do rate, review, and subscribe. Um, you can find this podcast and the School Safety Free Period podcast wherever you get your podcasts on uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. I don't even remember. The places where podcasts are. You can get the RSS feed. Uh, you can actually listen to the podcast directly on our website. If you are not a podcast type person and someone sent this to you, you can watch them directly on, listen to them directly on the website. If you have any questions, you can always email us info at eschoolsafety.org. And that's our website, eschoolsafety.org. We have tons and tons of free resources and lots of good information there that you can check out. And we always love to hear from you. So until next time, thanks.